I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Ben Lee. He's a musician, a producer, a storyteller, and also a death doula. We learn what led him from being a childhood music star to helping those face end of life. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Ben, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am amazed. You have such an interesting life. You've begun writing music at the age of 14. And as you've grown older, your spiritual pursuits have influenced your life and music. Tell me about how you went from punk rock superstar to trying to find a spiritual path within your life. I think these things were always running simultaneously. I was brought up in a family of uh, people who like to think and like to question and were uh, you know, ethical questions and moral questions were always being bandied around, around about around the dinner table. And for me, even the term spirituality, it can be a bit loaded. Uh, in, in some ways, I think that truly what is, what is spirituality? It's the desire to know. You know, I, I always like the the word gnosis, the Christian term for uh, learning knowledge from within, information from within. So the the quest for information and the quest for understanding, a philosophical yearning was always very strong in my family. So for me, it was natural that it would, I was put into a Jewish school. I was the only kid in the family who was given a religious education, which was an interesting twist of fate for me because it, it gave me permission to begin exploring a lot of things that maybe other people in my family didn't have a formalized platform for exploring. Now, you grew up in Sydney, correct? Yes. So, was that typical with every other families going to, you know, sending someone to a spiritual school or a Jewish school or a Christian school? Was that typical in, in Australia? Well, you know, we were a middle class Jewish family, so there was... I wouldn't say that's necessarily typical of Australia, but within our community, there was a lot of, there was, you know, a private school sort of uh, culture. And I think for me, I was the youngest child and both my sisters had gone to public schools and had very secular educations. And for whatever reason, my parents decided they wanted to expose me a little bit more to my cultural roots or to some kind of religious education. So <laughs> I'm not sure they realized quite how seriously I'd take it. Uh, but uh, but I, I always found it to be incredible because you'd actually have rabbis coming in and we could debate with them and talk with them and ask questions. And it's particularly in Judaism, asking questions is central to the experience of being Jewish in an academic setting. So, so a lot of these seeds were planted very, on, very early on of what it could look like to take philosophy and like a love of wisdom more seriously. Now, did some of this philosophy and wisdom come out even in your lyrics when you were 14? Yeah, I would say in my lyrics, it's quite interesting, you know, because when you're 14 years old, uh, you just want to be cool. And it's, it's more conformist, generally, I should say, just for me, the way I wrote was, 
it was more aesthetic, like trying to appear a certain way. But I think the philosophical underpinnings of what I did was actually relevant in the very inception of my musical career at 14 years old. Like when I listened to the music that I made then, it's quite horrible. Yet, <laughs> yet it contains it contains a, a certain type of courage mm. and a certain yearning that is uncommon for a fourteen year old boy to express. Um, so, I wouldn't say lyrically you necessarily sensed like my my love for these subject matters in, in the lyrics, but in the idea just at fourteen that you would trying to be bust to to bust out of limitations and find your creative voice and be willing to take this on your own shoulders. No, it wasn't like, it wasn't like a Disney thing with stage parents or anything. This was like, we got into the punk rock community, the underground music scene, you know, and, um, and really that is, there's an, it, it involves a lot of, a lot of thinking and a lot of confrontation with ideas just to even put yourself out there in that way. Especially at 14. How are your parents? Were you? Were they were like cool with this? I would call them bemused. Was probably <laughs> the right word. I mean, I think they were just surprised because it was like this little idea I had, and then it gathered some steam, and record labels would come and see us, and they really just did not know what to make of it. I think, and <laughs> in a way, that was probably the best thing because they really left me to my own devices with it, and I could sort of take the journey that I needed to take. Well, I've seen a few videos, music videos. You were you were a headbanger. Yeah, I mean, I liked. I I still believe, and it's interesting. You know, you could say in this conversation, this podcast, centering around the idea of a conversation around death in a mainstream environment, is the punk rock impulse. Uh, the punk rock to me was always much meant much more than a style or an aesthetic. It meant the desire to confront hypocrisy and to, to raise uncomfortable truths. And obviously, musically, there was a lot of often aggression within that style, but there were also other types of musical styles and aesthetics. Uh, but what was common was the desire to think outside the box and to challenge the mainstream. So, yeah, like the, the, the drums and loud guitars and all of that sort of thing, it's like, you know, it, it's entertaining. But at the heart of punk rock is a desire to attempt to rebel and think for yourself. Well, I think that's an awesome explanation. So how did you become interested in end of life? Yeah, well, that really uh, came out of, well, it came out of for a number of years I was quite deeply explored the use of psychedelics within therapeutic settings and uh, different types of shamanic practices. And I began to see the connection between these amplified states of consciousness that occur with the use of these natural medicines and different things, and also to do with prayer and meditation and the death experience. In fact, it's quite interesting if you look at a book like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, a lot of people assume that it's a guidebook on how to die, literally, at the end of your life, which in a way it is, but also on a more esoteric level, it's a guide for how to practice dying on a day-to-day -day level. And many profound mystical traditions include death practices, and particularly in the shamanic cultures. The idea that 
rebirth would come with a death experience in the internal landscapes, in the psychological landscapes, is very well documented. Uh, you might say that the initiations, whether it was like for teenagers who were entering tribal culture or these different types of initiation experiences, if you, if you read the testimonies of them, they often involve being torn limb from limb and experiencing one's own death and then being rebuilt out of a matter constituted out of a higher vibration. So essentially, this is a metaphor or an allegory for the way that we enter new cycles of our life, new psychological spaces, and a new maturity. So for me, I began to see this connection between having an effective spiritual path and confronting one's own mortality. And then within sort of group settings or support roles, the way we might support each other, where it's whether it's in a formalized setting, like with a counselor or a massage therapist or something like that, who's in a therapeutic or guide role, and or someone who just comes over to your house, a friend of yours that has a problem, who just got fired from their job or who just went through a breakup. I began to feel that a lot of the modalities of support that were offered were very unsubstantial. They they were ineffective. There was actually not much that we could really do for each other. Because truly, like in a spiritual sense, in a psychological sense, there's a very personal confrontation going on with our own higher intelligence at these moments. Like I like the word crisis, because it really is a crisis. That's where we grow when we're confronted by a reality we didn't know to be true moments before often. And that there's something about the, you know, you've heard the phrase holding space for each other. Literally, sure. I think that's all we can do. That I started to realize that whether someone is in the middle of a, say, a, a ayahuasca ceremony, uh, confronting their regrets about their, about their past and the mistakes they've made, or there's somebody on their deathbed, or there's somebody who's just gone through a failed marriage, what can you really say to any of these people? There's really not much you can do except create a safe space for them to let them know that their process is valid and that you're there for them if, if they need you. And all of this led me to realizing that there was no greater literal representation of that process than supporting someone who's dying. And from there, I really just wanted to learn the skills. And I even took it into, I think, as a performer, when I stand in, on a stage in front of 500 people. What am I doing? I'm singing to 500 dying people. That's all we're ever doing. All we're ever doing is this is you and me. We're just two dying people talking to each other right now. Absolutely. I mean, the, when you take your first breath, you start this journey of beginning the end. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's every day. Exactly. And so I just wanted to learn the skills of how to be a brother to various people on in the world that I would interact with and how to support them in their own personal death process. Now, when did this evolve? I mean, what around what age were you aware or were you always aware? And I mean, is this happening with your own meditation practice? Uh, dying. Uh, my dad died when I was, I think, 19 or 20. And it was interesting because he died in surgery, yet... I sensed something happening to him before in the weeks leading up to it 
And it was quite strange because in a way you could say that his death was accidental in that the surgery didn't work out, yet he seemed to be in a process beforehand. So I don't have any big answers on what that means or how that's possible, yet it did reinforce the idea that death is a process, even if it incurs accidentally. Um, so for sure from that age, from my early 20s, I was thinking about it. And then as I got more serious in my late 20s, early 30s about my own private meditation practices and spiritual practices, and I really came to love the term mystical death, uh, which is, or psychological death, which is really a term that implies the dying of the ego hmm. and how that in a lot of ways, you'll find this in a lot of esoteric sort of middle ages, esoteric um, Christian literature and stuff. Uh, the idea was that we have to die to come to know ourselves, to be born, we have to die. And that it's a glorious process, these various flawed and limited aspects of our own personality coming to their own demise. And what does it mean to will that on? So this, this came to be a growing theme in my life. So were you in Australia when you started the process of becoming a death doula? No, I did. I did that in a, I've, I've lived in the U S for about 20 years now. And, um, I began by, I, I did an online course called beyond hospice. That was really interesting. I think it was 80 hours or a hundred hours of, uh, of theoretical work and, and reading and also essays and understanding my own. I think, I think that woman's based in Austin and the last section of it involved practical. We needed to learn practically how to, uh, prepare bodies and dry ice and all that sort of stuff. So I found a local person in LA called Olivia Barham who runs something called Sacred Crossings. She's a death midwife. And I did some courses with her. And, and then from there, I went into some hospice volunteering. And really, at that point, I would say the, the sort of training push, all of this lasted a year or two. And at that point, uh, you know, you got to understand too, I'm not a professional in the sense like I don't have a, a business card or right. ask people to give me any money. To, and I don't even do this professionally. However, I, I developed a skill set that I try to practice in everyday life, whether that involves someone literally dying or it involves tucking my daughter into bed at night. <laughs> I think it's, it's all the same skill set. <laughs> but you did do some volunteer with volunteering with hospice, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I you did. worked with dying individuals. What was, yeah, what was yeah, that? I did. What was that like? Um, again, what was reinforced over and over and over is how little you can do. There were some cases where people would be literally in and out of consciousness and out for most of the day. So really it was just sitting there and being a loving presence. And then there were other people who were very ch chatty and on stage four liver failure for 15 years. That liver just would not fail. And, um, and, you know, those people are very cheery and it was more conversational and wanting to watch an episode of Cheers on the TV. Um, and, I, and then there were all kinds of cases, uh, you know, in between uh, various things. I remember I actually played music during the, uh, the wake or the vigil for someone's aunt 
And I sat there for several hours as people came in another room uh, after this lady had died and just held space musically, musically for them. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I would just say overall what was reinforced over and over and over again is that our ability to handle our own anxiety, to tolerate our own anxiety in the face of the great unknown can actually create really nice openings for people who are going through big processes. What did you, when you had some exposure with those who were engaging in conversations, those who were facing uh, an imminent end of life um, in the next few weeks or days, I mean, did you, did you see or hear from them anything that was different than you and I? Like so many people think that the dying um, once you figure out you're dying, you accept it, then poof, you become a, this whole different person. And is that what you found or was that not what you found? I mean, again, in my limited experience, uh, what I've seen is that the movement into the interior landscape as the primary experience is what seems to be taking place over those last days, weeks, months, that there is a shift. Now we each are, we each are conscious of our internal worlds to varying degrees. So for some people, that's a very violent shift in that if they're people who are very extroverted and very obligation oriented and type A personalities, that shift may be more traumatic for others who are more meditative and calmer and ready to take that time, it, it can be a little more graceful, but it doesn't really matter. It just seems that there is a gradation of awareness of the internal world that increases as they move towards the end, as we move towards the end. Throughout your experience, have you found some of your interaction with individuals facing end of life or your your own curiosity of research or training have you found some of this creeping into some of your music for sure yeah i mean from very like literal things like i wrote a song called everybody dies for my daughter when she was about i think four or five because i was right when i was studying all this stuff and she'd hear us talking about it. i remember one night she turned to me and she said dada i don't want to die am i gonna die like it, it hit her and my wife god bless her like classic, like mother just trying to allay their children's fears, just turns there and says, no. And I was like, oh man, this is setting us up for a difficult conversation. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I wrote this song called Everybody Dies. And, and it was, it was, it's been interesting to sing that song. It's like a children's song. People can look it up. It's, you know, on, on iTunes or whatever and um, YouTube. And it's, uh, it's really a song where I tried to demystify it for my daughter. Um, the chorus is, um, and it's all right because everybody dies. There ain't no way around it, although everybody tries. And it's okay. Everyone's afraid. Just wrap your arms around the one you love tonight because everybody dies. And so that was a very, you know, subject matter wise. And then more almost atmospherically, I would say that as I've gotten interested in being more supportive as an artist and as a person, as opposed to stealing attention, uh, when you're trying to attract attention and get people to praise you, you want to do the most abrasive work possible, which is why work, you know, pop uh, work, it, it's often very intrusive. Like we hear it and it's like, oh, it's like stuck in my mind. It's trying to get in my ears with all these aggressive sounds. Whereas once musicians try to support a person's process with their music, often it becomes the music can 
I don't want to say go into the background because the music can still be the center, but it becomes maybe more gentle. And I think my music, my last album I made, Freedom, Love, and the Recuperation of the Human Mind, for sure, was about creating a, a gentle space, a relaxing space. And a lot of that comes from honoring the same way you'd honor a newborn baby. You wouldn't be too loud in the room, hopefully. You would honor someone who's dying by just being conscious of the space and respecting it and treating it as somewhat sacred. And in a way, I think more and more about what type of music honors the sacredness of our consciousness. Well, with your curiosity about death and dying, about just being aware and awake, which is, I believe, is the key to connection, like authentic connection with individuals. And some people do that through music or conversation. But how do you want to die? How do I want to die? Um, I mean, I don't, I'm not that fussed about the external specifics. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I would like to die, ideally, with a degree of awareness. And I am an adventurer, if nothing else. The 14-year-old the that thrust themselves into the music industry against their better judgment and despite the lack of technical ability. Uh, I, I'm that person. I've always loved adventure. And I, I look forward, in a way, I've always looked forward to death. And I've always looked, I'm not in a rush. I love life too. But I, I, I do look forward to the, the next great adventure, even if that is just observation of those final moments and i mean how wonderful that we're all bound together by this sense of mystery mm. and i don't care how religious you are which sacred text you've read which at the end of the day we basically do not know what's going to happen no you're right because <laughs> because i don't know what's going to happen in five minutes let alone when i'm going to die so i i do like that we're bound together in mystery and i do uh, i i try and be patient and not be morbid but, but move towards it with a smile. Now, have you done your advanced care planning and started talking to your wife about, hey, we have a child now. What would happen if something would happen to the two of us? And it, not in a morbid way, but more of a, hey, let's plan for the worst and hope for the best sort of way. We absolutely have had those conversations um, as much as being... Um, all these other characteristics, we are also both artists and perhaps not quite as organized as we should be. Um, <laughs> so the conversations don't really scare us. Uh, the, the, the actual bureaucracy and, and paperwork scares us. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, but for, for sure, I mean, I've, I've, and on top of that, talking about, you know, I, I've always felt cremation is a much less, you know, I've never, I've, I, maybe I, did, I went to my dad's where they put the stone setting at his grave. But I've never gone back to the graveyard to visit my dad because I, I really don't feel like he's there. Um, and I think, it for me, it would set up a mixed message hmm. to, to my family to, to build some tomb. Uh, I, I like the idea of them focusing on me as spirit and as energy rather than where my body's planted. Um, so that sort of thing we've certainly spent some time thinking about. So speaking of your lovely wife, you and her have started a business. And I bring this up because I, as I've grown older and I've grown more with my meditation practice and awareness, essential oils play a huge role in that for me. Plus, plus with healing. Oh. I mean, I, I believe that 
that you know, I just read this book um, that is teaching about whatever you take in, that's pretty much your health, but essential oils can heal. And I've been, I have this little, I think it's a humidifier that you put a little oil in and it lavenders the room. Yeah, diffuser. Thank you. Diffuser. Um, a diffuser. But yeah, so yeah. tell me, yeah. how did you get involved with essential oils? Yeah, well, that was a real <laughs> left turn. Um, <laughs> I guess, I guess, but like you've probably gotten a sense of, this isn't uncommon in my life narrative um, to have take left turns. Um, basically, I knew very little about essential oils. I was a real guy. I always say I just thought there was something women put in their <laughs> baths to smell nice. Um, I, but I, I have always loved natural, you know, living naturally and utilizing the gifts of the earth in different ways. Uh, but primarily what was interesting about this experience, my wife knew more about the oils. I was very touched by, I've actually always loved business and I'm, I'm very uncynical about business in that. Okay. I'll say most business I am cynical about, but I've always believed in the possibility of ethical business uh, because I've done it myself. I've made albums and donated the profits to charities like Finca, microloans agency, for women in third world countries. I mean, I've, I've, I've done ethical business, so I believe it's possible. And when this business model was shown to me about becoming a wellness advocate and really building a business, not based on like upselling people and trying them to get them to buy more than they need and regretting it and <laughs> resenting you for the rest of their life. But actually, but actually in small amounts, changing their life and getting chemicals out of their home and starting to use more natural products with their kids and their own health and, and really building a business based on education and community. I really liked the business model. I believed in it. And it's now been a journey for me, firstly, to learn about the power of working with plants in these ways. Uh, I now use them constantly. Just before we talked, I took a little blend called Motivate and put it on uh, put it on me so I could feel like energized and uplifted. Uh, but also the ethical entrepreneurial side and building teams. We now have teams in the US, Australia, Hong Kong, Canada, and really just thinking about empowering people financially, but for the right reasons, because they're people that want to give back to the world and they're people that want to help others. And there's really nothing wrong with abundance. It's just what do you have to do to get it? You know, so for me, this whole journey has been amazing to work. Ioni and I love to collaborate with each other. So this has just been another field. And we have this, we call it Sky Lee Essential Oils. Her, her middle name's Sky and our, our last name's Lee. And, um, and we, we just love empowering people in people, people's health and people's business. Well, I've, I've seen a couple of videos with you and your wife, and you guys are actually educating about the benefits of essential oils and and how to use them. And recently, I believe there was a new oil that came in. I can't remember what it was. And y'all were so, you're adorable because you were so excited about helping people and educating people about what this could do to your health. And I hats off to you because I think it's, I, th I think that uh, it's amazing that you as an artist can do the right hand or the 90 degree turn and still continue on your curiosity to helping other people. I think it's amazing. Well, it's like, yeah, well, it's like I said, like going back to the message of punk rock, punk rock was about think for yourself. 
And the uh, the songwriters I liked growing up, like Bob Dylan, he did what he wanted to do, you know. And for me, if there's anything to win as an artist, it's the right to do what you want to do. Um, so I love the fact that it confounds my audience sometimes. I love the fact that they look at me going, what is he up to? And I'm like, oh, don't worry about it. I'm just doing what I want to do. Really, that's how it's, – it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Once our basic, you know, once our basic needs are met – what do we have to do? We have to kind of in little ways, just like lead by example and give back. And it's a really beautiful opportunity. Absolutely. So how do people find you with these essential oils? Uh, they can find us on Facebook, Skyly Essential Oils, S-K-Y-E-L-E-E, um, Essential Oils, Oils. And, uh, or they can just email me at skylyoils at gmail.com. So S-K-Y-E-L-E-E, oils at gmail.com. That's amazing. And for anybody who is interested in becoming a hospice volunteer or possibly a death doula, you can reach out to your local hospice organization. Or you can look at the International End of Life Doula Association at their website at www.inelda.org. Ben, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story with us. You are such a down-to-earth sort of person, and I just really appreciate knowing you and um i I just appreciate your time oh thank you so much i really really appreciate you having me be well all right bye thanks for joining us today and remember you're the designer